you know, I was thinking about this series that we're going to engage in today, and, and I grew up um, liking, I like boxing. And uh, now boxing is not as big as it was when I was young, but uh, when I was a kid, Muhammad Ali was one of the most famous people in all the world. Everyone knew um, who he was, and boxing was a much bigger sport than it is today. But if, if you're a boxer, one of the things that you do is study the tape of your opponents, or learning their fighting style and uh, their strengths and, and their weaknesses, or where they're vulnerable, studying their tendencies and what they do uh, when they're in the ring. If you're in the military, uh, you are briefed about the enemy, the enemy that you're fighting. You study their tactics. You try to get familiar with their weaponry, uh, how and when they attack. The difference between boxing and being in the military or being at war is, is what's at stake. Boxing is a competition with rules, like no hitting below the belt. Uh, there are rounds where in between you go to your corner and you get to sit down on a stool and rest for a minute and get your cuts and your wounds taken care of. Um, there is a referee that is conducting the fight, and he starts out usually in the beginning of the bout saying, we're looking to have a good, clean fight. And, and when the rules are violated, uh, there is a warning, and then there's even points that would be deducted. Not so in war. There's no rest in between the rounds. The enemy strikes when you least expect him to. At night, while you're sleeping, uh, the times when you're most vulnerable, he comes hidden. He comes disguised and out of nowhere. And he's coming to take your life. In war, the enemy comes to kill. And in war, there are many, many casualties. Those that just don't make it. The enemy has one goal in mind. And his goal is to take as many lives as possible until the ones who are still alive surrender. If you are at war or have been at war, you know this. You, you, you recognize the enemy. You prepare and you fight for your life and the cause of your country. But what about the enemy of your soul? Do, do you recognize the enemy? Are, are you prepared? Are you equipped and engaged in the fight. Second Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, so that you may not be taken advantage of by Satan. 
for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Oftentimes, I, I fear that we are ignorant of his schemes. But the stakes are too high. And we can't afford to be ignorant of his schemes. This is about life. This is about souls. The sermon this morning is entitled, Intel About the Enemy. And the series we're going to engage in is called, It's War. We're going to be speaking about spiritual warfare for the next couple of weeks. So we're going to find ourselves this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to start reading at verse 6. I'll be reading out of the CSB this morning, and I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting at verse 6, reads this way. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while, to him be dominion forever. Amen. Father, we, we thank you for equipping your saints, for opening our eyes. We thank you where the word of God warns us to be alert and, and lets us know what we are engaged in. We're engaged in a war. But as we sung song after song, the victory has already been won. But at the same time, it hasn't come to the place of full consummation where we no longer have to fight. We, we are engaged in a fight. But you are God. We are under the shadows of your wings. Let us be aware of our enemy, the stakes and our lives and how you want to use them. So we submit ourselves to you this morning as we hear your word. It is an act of worship for us to hear your word. Would you do a work in us? Change our hearts. We leave here different than we came in. 
In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Peter here is, is finishing up a letter, a letter he wrote to the exiles that had been dispersed because of the persecution of the Christians and the church. And here he is addressing the elders who are shepherding God's flock until Christ returns with his rewards. And in verse 5, he says, In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, cast casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. The, the first point that I want to make and something that we are all prone to do is I want to say to you, don't take matters into your own hands. This is always our temptation, our timing, our way, our will. What the text here is saying is, be humble. Under God's mighty hand. For us to be humble is because he has already stated, I resist the proud. And, and for us to be humble would mean uh, not our timing. It would mean not our way. It would mean not our will. But because we are under the mighty hand of God, it would be his timing. It would be his way. It would be his will. So here uh, it even states, so that you may be exalted at the proper time. So often... We want to put the cart before the horse. And our timing is different from God's timing. But God's timing is perfect and God's timing is proper. It says here that we can cast our cares on him. Because he cares for us. In, in other words, these things that you're worried about, whether it be timing or what's going to happen, and remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to those that have been exiled, that have been dispersed, and now they're going out preaching the gospel, and they are under a lot of duress. And, and he's saying to them, don't take matters into your own hands. You're in my hands. Uh, he's saying to them, there's a proper time for everything and wait for the proper time. I'll exalt you in the proper time. And he's saying, don't worry about it, I got you. He says here, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring 
lion looking for anyone he can devour. Now remember who is writing this letter and to whom he's writing it to. This letter is written by Peter. What would Peter know about the devil? In Luke chapter 22, this is uh, right at the Last Supper. Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm going to Calvary. And you would think that that would be very sobering, but the next conversation is, I wonder who's going to be positioned how. And within that conversation, Jesus, bringing it back to some sense of sobriety, says, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And Peter's response is, Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. So Jesus, having to get his mind right, says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you deny me three times that you even know me. So Peter had interactions with the devil. He, he watched Jesus in his public ministry and his interaction with demonic forces, and he was personally attacked. So he knew what he was talking about when he was given this warning. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. So, so Peter is saying this from firsthand experience. Well, it begs the question, then, who is the devil? Who is the devil? Who is this adversary that is being called your adversary? It's funny, people have a range of thoughts when they think about the devil. Um, from cartoons with a little red guy sitting on your shoulders with horns and a, a, a pitchfork uh, whispering in your ear from the whole expression of evil that everyone says, well, this is the personification of evil, the devil. The Bible gives us a, a clear portrait of who Satan is and how he affects our lives. Simply put, uh, Satan is an angelic being who fell from his position in heaven due to sin and is now completely opposed to God and doing everything he can in his power to thwart God's purposes. The times when the devil is described in the Bible in terms of his 
full. Both have kind of poetic language, and, and in both cases, they're speaking about an earthly king, and then it switched gears, and it's obvious that it's not speaking about an earthly king anymore because no earthly king could be spoken of in this light. One of those places is in Isaiah 14. You know the book of Isaiah, uh, it's a book with a lot of poetry, and then it has narrative, and then it has prophecy, so it's not so easy to just say, this is this. But in any event, in Isaiah 14, starting at verse 12, it says this, shining morning star, how you have fallen from heaven, you destroyer of nations. You have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my thrones above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of God, of God's assembly in the remotest part of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you will be brought down to Sheol into the deepest regions of the pit. So this language is, is too lofty for a human king, and, and most theologians believe that this speaks of Satan's fall from heaven, along with Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 19, where it says, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone covered you. And then it goes to a, de a description of these stones. In verse 14 it says, you are an anointed guardian cherub, which is a type of angel. For I have appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. Through the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I expelled you in disgrace from the mountain of God and banished you, guardian cherub. From among the fiery stones, your heart became proud because of your beauty. For the sake of your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom. So I threw you down to the ground, and I made you a spectacle before kings. So Satan led a revolt in heaven where other angels revolted with him, and they were cast out of heaven. And his fall was due to pride. God hates pride. We started reading, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Remember, God resists the proud. So Satan is the head. He is the head of the demons. Satan's pride is what led to his fall. Notice what we just read and how many times he said, I will. 
We, we have to be careful with that type of language. And because of sin, God permanently removed him from his exalted position and role. We know that the Bible says pride comes before the fall. It's funny because there is a confidence that we should exude as children of God. And that is very different than pride. I was just having a conversation with my daughter about having a certain type of godly confidence and telling her whatever decisions you make in life, just don't allow your motivation to be fear because that's not of God. So a godly confidence is much different because it's not about who I am, but who I'm with. When, when you are with the Lord and you are about his business, there is a confidence that you should have because of who he is. It's very different than what we're reading here. Satan became the ruler of this world and the prince of the power of the air when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. That, that was their position that they gave up. And he is called an accuser. He is called a deceiver. His very name means adversary, one who oppresses. Another of his titles is the devil, which means slanderer. He is a liar and a murderer, and he was so from the beginning. So these names are named to him because of his activity and, and the demons that are with him. That's why we are told, resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. So that's just to let you know, you ain't the only one going through it. You know how we personalize everything. No one has it as bad as me. And that's why scriptures like this are in the Bible. Now, when we think about what people are experiencing, believers throughout the world, and we're sitting here in comfy seats outside of the rain with a microphone, Lights, a bathroom, oh, all of those things you take for granted. People are in war-torn countries. People have natural disasters, and they're in the midst of that. People can't feed their children. So um, we're doing pretty good. We're not the only ones going through it. And that is not to minimize what you're going through. Even though Satan was cast out of heaven, he still seeks to elevate his throne above God's. 
But every single thing he does, he's a counterfeit. This is how he lies. He always puts out counterfeit material in hopes to gain worship from the world and to encourage opposition to God. Know this. Hear me. He has no power over the believer. He has no power over the believer. But you know what you're thinking in your mind? Then why in the world is all of this stuff happening to me? Um, a lot of times, you give them access. You give them access when you're deceived by his lies and fall into temptation. Ephesians 4.27 says, and give no opportunity to the devil. James 4.7 says, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So, he's just not willy-nilly doing whatever he wants to do to you. No, no, no. We have to make sure that we're not given opportunity. No, we have to make sure that we submit to God and resist him. This is another, we just read in the, in the passage for this morning, resist him. This in James is saying, resist him, which means he can be resisted for the believer. And when you resist him, he will flee. But James goes uh, further uh, in, in the beginning of his letter, and, and he, he spells it out a little better. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted. Hear this. Each person is tempted when he is Lord. And enticed by what? His own desires. Then desires, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. You see, that, that's what we're experiencing. So the question is, are you falling prey to schemes? Are you ignorant of his schemes? I say this all the time, and I used to say this to the youth all the time. The devil doesn't have any new tricks, just new people to play it on. He, he, he has a set structure that he has to work within. It's we that give him access. For the believer, God has a hedge of protection around you. So either you're giving the devil access, and that's not good, or God has given him some access. But either way, the devil needs permission. Wait a minute, preacher, you just said that God gives the devil access? Well, when the devil 
came before God, he, God says to him, have you seen my servant Job? He said, well, yeah, Job, look, look how you blessed him. He's got a hedge of protection around him. And he asked for access. And God granted it. Like, what? But why? Because ultimately, it was for Job's good. Job came to the place where he said, I heard about you, now I, I, now I know you. Everything he went through was worth that. Look what we just read about Peter. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He needed permission, and God granted it. We might not like that, but it says Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, when you have gone through all that Satan is going to put you through, that I put limits on, strengthen your brothers. God knows what he's doing when he gives access. So in a sense, the devil works for him. Because he cannot just come and run Rashad in your life without God giving him access. But anytime God gives him access, it's for our good and God's glory. We know this, and the scriptures tell us in James chapter 1 and verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. So this trial leads to steadfastness, has an effect. And God is saying, let it be the full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The world doesn't have an assurance of bad things coming to them and it makes any kind of sense. Actually, it's just a whole bunch of unfortunate events for them, seemingly so. But for the believer, if God has given access it's because God knows exactly what he is doing. Other hand, when you're giving access to the devil, you cannot measure the consequence, and sin always costs more than you want to pay. So the devil does not have free reign in your life. You are in the position to resist the devil if you have the Holy Spirit 
continue. And the reason we come to church and Bible study and prayer meeting and read the word and pray to God is so that we will be strengthened to be able to resist the devil. And any part of the devil messing with you outside of you giving him open access is by God and is for your good. That's something to be excited about. Because it already allows you to see, no, yes, yes, we're in a war. No, he can't really do anything to you. The devil is defeated. For the unbeliever, though, is different. For the unbeliever, Satan is doing a number on them. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. One, that should bring us to a place where we say, thank God that I am saved. Thank God that my eyes are open. Thank God I have the Holy Spirit in me. But it should also bring us to a place of sober-mindedness about the condition of the world and encourage us to go out and proclaim the good news. 1 John 5, 19 says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You can come up, worship team. But for us, Jesus said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Don't take us out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 1 John 4, 4 says, Little children, are you, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. So my preaching is almost done, but I got a feeling people are like, no, 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 keep preaching. I don't want to get wet. <laughs> the one time they're like, go ahead, preacher, <laughs> preach on. <laughs> if he... um the Holy Spirit is not in you. You cannot withstand the enemy of your soul. So humble yourself. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he 
may exalt you in your proper time, casting all your cares on him when you come to the Lord. Say, God, I can't hold this anymore. Would you take it? Because he cares for you. The warning of being sober-minded and alert is real because the devil is prowling around. He's looking and studying the weaknesses, just like we were talking about the boxer looking at the tapes of the opponent. We're being studied. So it is important for us to know the enemy of our soul and his tactics. So we are in the position to resist him. You, you may be in a place where you're like, I keep getting this and that and the other in my life. What is going on? You're going to have to separate. What am I giving the enemy access to? And because of that, these things I'm facing. And what is God allowing in my life because he's doing a work in me? So often, we don't want to take responsibility for the access that we have given. But God in his mercy and his grace, even when we fail, and we all do, and we all do, and we all do. He will cover us. When we come to him humbly, say, God, I blew it here again and I've given access. I need you to bail me out. I need your help. And he does it. That is for the believer and for the unbeliever. God, I didn't know you cared for me, but I'm recognizing that I can't even care for myself. I've put myself in these situations. I've run from you. If you're here today, it's an example of another time that God is chasing you down and saying, Humble yourself. Put your faith in Jesus. And then you'll be able to resist him firm in the faith because it's firm in the faith of the one who has defeated the devil at Calvary. When the devil thought he was winning, he didn't know that very same thing was going to give the victory. The cross is the symbol of our salvation. The cross is a symbol of love. The cross is a symbol of victory. So when we look at the cross, we recognize God came down into his creation, born as a babe, lived a 
perfect life, showed us the example of how to live, died on the cross, was buried and raised from the dead, showing not only did he have power over the grave, but that he is God and went into heaven and he's coming back. And he calls all of those that have been beat down from the devil that they even are responsible for whatever access they have given the devil, being a slave to sin, which comes from pride. I want to do it my way, the way I want to do it. And God so graciously allows that person to come to the end of themselves just like you and me. And he rescues them. That's why we say that God has saved us. And he's saving us. And he will save us. In other words, you are already God's child and in his kingdom. But as believers making mistakes, we need to be continually saved from the wows of the devil from death, from this world. And he's doing that. But then there's going to come a time where we are saved in his house, sitting at his table. Would you stand, family? As we always read, I am sure, I am confident, I have no doubt that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. At the end of Peter's letter, after he spoke about the devil, in verse 10 he says, the God of all grace, the God of all grace, that thing we so desperately need, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you suffered a little while. To him, to that God, to the God of all grace, be dominion and power forever and ever. Amen. 